Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from us all at TNT Radio. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. And welcome back to the second hour of the Weekends program. I'm delighted to have your company. And if you get a chance, please like or share or even leave a comment where you can on the various different platforms where we're playing out. You might find us out there on Rumble, YouTube, Facebook, on X, or even on our own website, tntradio.live. Well, my guest this hour is Gail McRae. Gail is a registered nurse. She's a student certified nurse midwife and woman's health nurse practitioner. She's worked in ICU and telehealth. I think that's how it, that explains it. We'll get some more information. She's worked all over the nursing uh, different departments, labor wards, et cetera, and been a nurse for 10 years during COVID. She worked for Kaiser Permanente in the Bay Area of California and saw firsthand that the media was deceiving the public on all things related to COVID-19. She chose to leave the hospital setting to advocate for justice. She now works with a small group of visionaries led, led by Dr. Christiane Northrop on a project set uh, to precedence with expert witness testimony by a mass filing of an affidavit called COVID Commonalities. And you can check out the work that they are doing there at Stand firmnow.org for more information. Gail McRae, welcome to Weekends. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate uh, that you're able to uh, to join us here all the way out of broadcasting out of Australia today. It is our Saturday and I realise that it's still Friday evening where you are in the US and uh, it's quite late. So uh, I, I really appreciate that you, you're able to do that for us today. What I'd like to do, though, to start off our conversation is describe for me how it is that you discover that you want to become a nurse I think it's a really important discovery because many people do that, but how it is we're going to lead this conversation into a way that what you discovered later on in your career, other people have not. But how did you start decide that, yeah, you want to be a nurse and then a nurse practitioner? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I My father went through a very traumatizing uh, hospital experience when I was 18 uh, and in addition to that, my mom was a nurse. She was an ICU nurse uh, for 45 years by the time she report, uh, retired. And uh, we, had, we had a lot of medical practitioners in the family. And after seeing what happened with my dad, it really inspired me to try and enter the field to uh, try and bring more justice into it. Uh, in addition to that, uh, the nurse practitioner specifically, uh, that came about when I was in college, actually. I uh, went through my labor and delivery education and rotation, and I saw that there were a lot of things happening in uh, labor and delivery in uh, the United States hospitals that didn't really feel very ethical. Uh, in addition to that, I noted that we had one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the world. Uh, so there was just, there seemed to be a lot of room for advocacy and uh, improvement in that area. So that really is what inspired me to, uh, from there, uh, go on to become a nurse practitioner. Here in the United States, as a nurse practitioner, uh, we have full scope of practice. So uh, there's a lot you can do. Uh, we could I could open a private practice and uh, have a full team 
of practitioners to work with. And, uh, you know, we can do birth centers and things like that to really just help uh, empower and educate families. And it's, it's a really good field. Now, a nurse practitioner, can a nurse practitioner, for example, prescribe medicine? Yes. Yeah, we have full scope of practice. So nurse practitioners, so um, my degree as an RN uh, was a BSN. So uh, it's a bachelor's in science with an RN. And then the nurse practitioner is about another three years on top of that. Uh, so it's um, very comparable to a DO doctor. I hear in the United States, our doctors, uh, they do about the same education as the nurse practitioners. So we sh we um, we we function generally on the same level. So I would be a primary care provider, for instance, as a women's health nurse practitioner. So I would manage full scope of normal uh, women's health issues. And if something came up that uh, fell outside of the realm of normal, I would refer a patient to a specialist. Understand. So that's was, not dissip. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. Sorry, I was um, I finished that degree in 2021. Dis, uh, besides the uh, 700 clinical hours that are required to complete the license. So I actually uh, received so much pushback uh, from hospitals throughout the United States, uh, in that they would not accept my uh, natural immunity. I had proved that I had natural immunity to COVID. And uh, throughout all of medical history, it's been contraindicated to get a vaccine once you have developed natural immunity uh, because it stimulates uh, hypersensitivity reactions and uh, it can end up leading to serious autoimmune conditions. Uh, and although I did present that information to my university and to my employer, uh, you know, we have profound bodies of evidence on that that go back hundreds of years. Uh, they still would not uh, allow me to proceed with those clinical hours. So I ended up backing off from, from completing that program, and we'll see what the future holds for that. That is uh, such an interesting point there because you've gone through a, a traditional nursing program, you've gone through practitioner training, and you're at the level of what many doctors have in terms of your knowledge. So when it gets to that situation that you realise that uh, clear, clearly you're, you're one of these um, uh, health practitioners that, that understands the difference between proven and experimental medicine at that point, you've probably already understood what mRNA, for example, was or was not. And at the point that you were then rejected in the information that you've um, provided to the university, how did you feel at that point? Did you feel like that you were now in in a brand new territory? Did you feel like that maybe that you were the one that was, did you doubt yourself at any stage or did you realise that there was something much bigger at play here that others weren't seeing? That's a great question. Uh, to tell the truth, uh, I was astonished. Mm -hmm. uh, I was not really prepared to uh, have to manage the fact that natural immunity was being denied. Mm. Uh, I had produced multiple blood tests showing mm. that I had robust immunity. Uh, and, and it 
And not just in uh, the completion of my practitioner program, but also in the hospital setting, uh, there were many instances where I can now reflect back and notice how um, I wasn't prepared to uh, encounter the responses I got, and it ended up leading to uh, some probably some stalling in in my uh, quickness to react and uh, respond to what I was being forced and asked to do. Um, for instance, there were a lot of ethical and moral violations that I was being exposed to very early on uh, in 2020 um, with regards to the COVID protocols and the way that we were being told uh, to engage with family members and patients. And uh, at first I, I could tell that it didn't really feel right, but there was a lag and a delay in response to where I could actually process, you know, the things that I was being told to do and the ethical violations that were really um, sinking in. It, it took a minute to sink in before I could really formulate um, an appropriate response. It's it's an extraordinary situation when you are going down a pathway where all of a sudden the world that you once knew is not the world that you now exist in, and it's almost like it's something that you've seen in a movie or you've been you've read in a book. But when it happens in real life, it causes one to really double check their own uh, pretty much everything that you're doing. But then at some point, if you were aware of this in the lead up and you can pick the pattern as it was in, in my case, kind of knew what was coming up. So it was a different approach. But for someone living in that in the health industry, living it day to day, that would be a very different scenario. It's like it's crept up and, and literally grabbed you by surprise. How did how did you explain that when you go home at, at night and, and just amongst the family sort of just scratch your head and go, this is not what how it was, almost as if to get some form of reflective um, position on your own part. How did your own family take what you were learning at the time? Yeah, it was very challenging. It was very challenging from day one because it was very clear that we were being lied to. Uh, mm -hmm. The hospitals, so I worked in the Bay Area of California, the San Francisco Bay Area. So we have uh, very densely populated communities there. In addition to that, they're very compliant. Uh, so there was a lot of people that, you know, they really stayed home. They um, all were very compliant with wearing masks. There was a lot of uh, people that were just genuinely really believing uh, what what was being said on uh, our news. And when I was in the hospital setting, it was very clear to me that the news was very inaccurate. Mm. And it was interesting, you know, you go home and talk to your family about it and there wasn't really a lot of deep thought. I think that a lot of us were so uh, were being so bombarded by all of the things on the media that we had kind of shut off uh, our capacity for deep thought and conversation. So even though I would bring it up, it definitely wasn't really discussed. Uh, and so I was kind of left just pondering on the things I was seeing. I would talk to my husband about it a little bit and uh, you know, 
it was just it was so unfathomable because we did trust our government and we did think that uh you know the cdc and the three-letter organizations that managed the uh, healthcare industries uh you know, we're most likely acting on uh, the best research. Actually, in correlation to that, I was in graduate school at that time in 2020, and I did have an experience in graduate school, which really complemented uh, my understanding of what was going on in COVID and that I discovered that uh, the medical uh, three-letter organizations that make medical recommendations for practitioners I discovered that they actually, in fact, weren't necessarily making uh, best medical recommendations based on clinical data and research. Uh, so having those two things kind of happen at once, like learning how to do the research and analyze the data and noticing that the data in other realms not related to COVID uh, were not reflecting uh, the medical recommendations, in addition to seeing what I saw happening on the front lines in the hospital, uh, it made for a pretty loud revelation to the facts that our societies and our healthcare systems relating to um, wellness in the community and the hospital settings, they were largely being controlled and manipulated. And so it all kind of came crashing down on me having all of those experiences at the same time. Oh, yes, indeed. I'd like to circle back to something you said earlier was concerning natural immunity. I, I remember making a video a couple of years ago uh, saying that it, the heading was natural immunity is the only way out. Uh, and I couldn't understand how you were meant to have natural immunity and then go and use some synthetic uh, spike protein that was the wrong shape already uh, by the time that the jabs had arrived because Omicron was characterised by a mutation of the spike protein. Therefore, it was a different shape. So it was already um, redundant at that point. But when you mention autoimmune problems that result in that, that's a major deal. In your work as a nurse practitioner, you must have come across a lot of autoimmune conditions. What made you aware that autoimmunity would be a problem uh, with the mixing of natural immunity and, and vaccination? That's been established in the research. Uh, although there's not a robust amount of research on uh, using vaccines in addition to natural immunity, there is a relatively strong uh, amount of research showing that uh, when we introduce a vaccine after somebody has natural uh, immunity, we hyperstimulate the immune response. Um, and in addition to that, it has the potential of causing uh, one to develop things like antibody dependent enhancement. Mm. And there's all of these types of things related to the immune response. Uh, and hyperstimulation of the immune response that we've seen really skyrocketing in the United States population, probably the world population too, uh, over my lifetime. So it's something that even before COVID, uh, I was very interested in learning more about because uh, we have, you know, between 300 and 3,000% increases uh, in chronic illness and disease and autoimmune diseases. Uh, and I, I've 
And so it's something I've always been very sensitive to. And uh, it was definitely one of the reasons why I was very concerned about uh, taking a shot on top of natural immunity, especially so I had uh, COVID in November of 2020. So it was less than two months later when the shots were being recommended to practitioners. And uh, even with the limited data we had, uh, it was very clear to me that you one should not take these shots uh, very shortly after developing natural immunity because your system is the most uh, stimulated to the spike protein and the components of the coronavirus at that early stage. So uh, I was definitely not at all considering taking that shot based on the research. And I'm a woman of childbearing age. So that was another uh, key factor is that uh, I felt that there wasn't enough research to indicate that it was safe for women who uh, may potentially become pregnant. Um, and the long-term impacts that that has on our genetics are still yet to be determined. Yes, well said. Now, what we're going to do is take a quick break here on weekends. And when we come back, we're going to explore more of what Gail has done since she's realised that she was one of these fishes out of water in a system that was not responding to how medicines should traditionally be practised in this crazy post-COVID society that we are witnessing mm -hmm. happening and then unfolding. You're watching Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Chris Smith. Despite being used to protect travellers from terrorists, hijackers or violent drunks or those who were drugged out as they board, and this has been going on since 1961, they won't be around this Thanksgiving. None of them. Air marshals were always meant to be invisible. Well, you can guarantee that this Thanksgiving. Ironically, the Biden administration has been hijacking air marshals for all kinds of other duties, leaving the passengers they were meant to guard and protect completely helpless. Air marshals have been lumbered with assisting the chaos on the southern border. They might be called air marshals, but an unknown number are now seconded to work on the ground. Maybe they're ground marshals now, marshalling illegal immigrants on the border and doing the job supposedly meant for the United States Customs and Border Protection. Where are they? Chris Smith on TNT Radio. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
Welcome back to Weekends. And in this hour, I'm speaking with nurse practitioner Gail McRae. And if you'd like to check out the work that Gail is doing, you can check out the website standfirmnow.org. Gail, I wanted to ask you, when you realise this obvious that we talked about before the break, the autoimmune conditions, et cetera, that as a result of post-natural uh, immunity made no sense, when you might have brought this up in conversation with other practitioners, doctors, nurses, et cetera, what kind of reaction did you get? You know, uh, I've definitely felt like this, along with many other aspects of our COVID response, was really met by uh, a brick wall. Yeah. I felt that practitioners in general, uh, they just really weren't capable many of them were just not capable of entertaining uh discussion and dialogue uh, it was almost like they had to in order to cope and to survive what they were experiencing they just had to do what they were told and just not exercise critical judgment it was almost like critical thinking would have uh, they were too afraid to exercise critical thinking because it would have potentially put them in danger. It was very interesting. Uh, I would try and dialogue and have conversations with people, and it was always met with stonewalling. That's really interesting because a nurse typically is the most practical person that you could know. And you would have to be in a situation where you, you're doing one of two things. You, you're either going along with the narrative like these other people were, but in your case, you have new, more pertinent information that says that something else much bigger and more dangerous is coming. And you go down a very, very different pathway at this point because you have to walk away from this scenario. What happens next? What is it that you decided to do that others wouldn't do in your next move? Well, you know, I continue to just try and talk to my colleagues for over a year. I really just constantly, every day at work, I would ask them, you know, why we were administering remdesivir. Mm. Uh, so that's a very hot, uh, that was very hot with me from day one. I, it was it was so nonsensical. Uh, we were denying the use of steroids with hospitalized patients who had COVID, which was uh, Dr. Pierre Corey here in the United States had gone up in front of the Senate in March of 2020 and showed a massive uh, reduction in uh, overall uh, death rates with COVID uh, when they were being administered high doses of the correct types of steroids. And not only were the hospital's not administering the steroids for this infectious disease that uh, that was the most inflammatory disease process we had ever seen. So there's a marker in the lab values that we would assess called uh, CRP. It stands for C-reactive protein. And that's an inflammatory marker that uh, was higher than we'd ever seen in any infectious disease with COVID. And uh, so, of course, the natural response to that is to get inflammation under control, which means administering high doses of steroids, which not only makes sense based on the 15 years of education I had had and experience, but also Dr. Pierre Corey and other practitioners, acute care physicians had shown 
that it was in fact the appropriate uh, treatment. So uh, in, a, in addition to the administration of remdesivir, which had a 53% death rate in the Ebola clinical trials, uh, the medication was, it was removed from one of the clinical trials uh, for Ebola, in addition to having uh, this other clinical trial with a 53% death rate. So this medication was the only thing that we were allowed to administer in the hospital setting for patients. Uh, in addition to that, remdesivir is an antiviral. And I was taught in my undergrad program for nursing that you should not administer an antiviral more than 48 to 72 hours post-symptom onset because uh, the benefits out, outweigh the risks. Sorry, the risks outweigh the benefits. Mm. So there were so many things happening in the hospital that I was, I felt like every time I went to work, I was just trying to understand and communicate with my with my colleagues fellow practitioners and constantly not being able to and constantly not understanding why we weren't responding appropriately so uh it was definitely very overwhelming for me for that first year while i was in graduate school and trying to communicate and failing to communicate with my colleagues. Uh, and then it, at, at the point after the rollout of the shots, that's really when uh, I came to a point where I could no longer ethically justify working in the hospital setting. So I'd mentioned that we had a high compliance rate in my community. Uh, I also live in um, one of the communities with one of the highest elderly populations in California. So, or sorry, in the country, in the United States. So high elderly population, high compliance rate, we would have been susceptible to seeing high numbers of COVID deaths, which we did not see. Uh, we had a very low uh, hospitalization and death rate from COVID during 2020 and a normal winter for the winter of 2020 and 2021. And then within three weeks of the rollout of these COVID shots to my community members, my hospital had a 300% increase in hospitalizations and deaths. And those were words from the lips of my management and administrators at the hospital I worked at. So it, it and, and even then, it took me a few more uh, weeks in that setting to really fully grasp that these were side effects from the shots. Uh, it was a combination of uh, being exposed to such a high increase in admissions. So I'd worked at this hospital for six years and a different hospital for a few years before that, always in acute care. And uh, I was very familiar with the way that the hospitals work. For instance, you know, we're full in the winter during the flu se season, and then the hospital's empty in the summer months. That's always been the case. My mother, as a nurse for 45 years before me, had never seen hospital admissions. You know, on top of my own experience, uh, I had known that she also, you know, had been watching hospital medicine since you know, the 1970s, and we'd never seen spikes like this. 
And so um, after seeing that happen, uh, there was one shift in particular in June of 2021. Uh, it was during that week when my manager had approached me and said, we've had a threefold increase in hospitalizations and deaths. And uh, I had I I was filling in. I was working a, a per diem position, so I would go in and uh, just go to whatever area of the hospital where they needed a, an extra hand, an extra nurse. So I was working a double because here we are in June, the middle of summer, and I was working doubles every time I would go to work because the hospital was so short staffed in the middle of summer. Mm. So I'd already had two indicators, right? Middle of summer, um, manager approaching me. And then I, I worked on these two units as a patient care coordinator. So I got report on that shift on a total of about 55 patients. And every single patient that I'd received report on was either being diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, rapid onset, uh, dementia or Alzheimer's, uh, a heart attack or a stroke, uh, or the most bizarre clotting disorder, things that I had never heard of. So in my career as a nurse, I had, um, like I said, about 10 years, I'd worked acute care. I'd taken care of two patients with Guillain-Barre. Mm. And over the course of about two weeks there, I had taken care of four patients with Guillain-Barre. And I had the opportunity to ask two of them what had, if they knew why they had had it, because it was a rapid onset. And they both suspected that it was from the shots that they had taken, the COVID shots. In addition to that, uh, I went home from work that after those two weeks in the hospital working doubles nonstop, I had realized that as 10 years as a nurse, uh, I had experienced, you know, hearing code blues that happens when somebody stops breathing or their heart stops. And uh, I had heard on average about one code blue per shift for the first 10 years in my career. Mm. And uh, after the rollout of these shots, I started hearing between about six and 10 code blues per shift. Wow. And they would always call them down to the lower level, uh, which is where, because I worked for a hospital where we had the vaccination clinic at the hospital and it was on the lower level of the hospital. In addition to that, two of my colleagues went into anaphylactic shock. So it became very clear to me. So I went home from work in June of 2021 and uh, at that point, I put all of these things together, all of these violations, and I could no longer justify trying to fight within the hospital setting. So I had uh, legal papers, legal documents drafted and uh, served to my employer. And uh, technically, they fired me for refusing the shot. But in reality, they put me on administrative leave two days after I had them served those legal documents. And then they fired me four days after that. So I have a pretty good case of retaliation here. Yeah, in, indeed. Indeed, you do. That's uh, it's, it's unbelievable to think that this is how the game is now played. I want to ask you if you've got, you just mentioned that uh, others had anaphylactic shock, staff members, etc. What do you think possesses a health trained professional to take an experimental uh, med medication in this case? Is it trust or is it ignorance? 
I would say that it's more trust than ignorance. I would also say that in my experience, my colleagues, they had decided to have trust. And once they made that decision, it was almost like do or die. Mm -hmm. It's like they can't go back. I had, I experienced this many times where they were just not capable of reevaluating the decisions that they had made. They'd made their decisions. And so they then decided to either intentionally or unintentionally um, create a world around them where those decisions made sense. Mm. So they would ignore things that didn't fit in. And then they would hyper exaggerate the things that did. And since their media was so profoundly uh, advocating for, you know, how extremely frightening COVID was, and it was, we were surrounded by it. We were inundated by it. We were swallowed by it. I'll say that this too, uh, I count myself lucky in that I am not a person who is very susceptible to fear. Uh, Some of my other experiences as a medical practitioner is that I worked for a year in rural Africa. Uh, So I was in the bush and I did not go with another organization. And it wasn't just rural Africa. I'd also worked in uh, rural communities in Central America in third world cultures. And so I'd had a very robust experience with uh, medicine that was not necessarily streamlined. And it really helped me uh, build a very strong foundation of safety, what is safe, what is not safe, and how to manage very uh, acutely dangerous situations. And and also in correlation with that, how to understand what's really not so dangerous. And so I think that that really played a key role in my ability to not be manipulated by the fear porn and um, brainwashing that I saw consistently going on when every time I turned on a TV. <laughs> yeah, so, indeed. Yeah. It's 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 phenomenal to uh, to be able to chronicle as you're doing, and we'll move to that in the next part of our conversation. The work that you're doing to chronicle testimony in this situation, but here at the same time, chronicling um, health practitioners, nurses, doctors, etc., through this particular process. And uh, and and it was interesting that that um, you said that it was a, a choice of trust as opposed to ignorance there, and it's that breach of trust um, that uh, that obviously has occurred here. And that just keeps climbing this this ladder of authority and, and, and it makes you question who really is in charge of all of this. And when you look to the very top and, and people focus at this sort of, you know, this um, uh, pinnacle or the top of the pyramid and you've got the World Health Organization and then you realise that the World Health Organization is led by a man who's not a, he's not a medical doctor, he's a PhD for writing paper on dirty water in the northern part of Ethiopia. And it just so happens that that man Tedros um, presided as health minister in Ethiopia at the three 
three separate cholera outbreaks that were never deemed to be called cholera because his excuse on each occasion was that testing was difficult, but it, but it was a, a characterised by acute watery diarrhoea. It's quite incredible. And this man gets promoted to become the uh, finance minister of Ethiopia, signs up to the Belt and Road Initiative, and a year later is made the uh, director general of the World Health Organisation, who we all know is uh, funded by an, a, a private citizen who's the number two funder, Bill Gates, not elected to any office, not a medical doctor, not even tertiary educated. And these are the people at the top of the, the tip of the spear, so to speak, that are that are calling shots that others, again, fall into this category of trusting a system. And this is part of the problem here, that we have systems and institutions that have failed us. And it seems that the only way that we can move forward here is to change how things are moving forward. And that's part of the work that you are, are now doing. So what we'll do is we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, We'll look into the work that you are doing with StandFirmNow.org. Meanwhile, you are watching and listening to Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. I want to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas. And I was trying to figure out, okay, what should I say? And I got an email from a friend of mine, Dr. Gregory Wrightstone. Actually, it's his group, the CO2 Coalition. And you know what? This is too good to pass up. I'm going to read it to you because it just about sums everything up. It was a few days before Christmas when all through the town, the creatures were all celebrating the warmth they had found. The trees were all prospering. The veggies, how merry. They had such an abundance. It was extraordinary. Those stories were circling of climate alarm. The wise citizens knew they were feeling no harm. We're celebrating the season, dear friends like you, and we give many, many thanks for our beloved CO2. I think you can agree that is beautiful. In any case, a very, very Merry Christmas to all. Enjoy the weather and your CO2. It's the only weather you've got. Whatever happens to good, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot and it's become our automatic answer to so much. Hey, how's things? Good. Your mum, your weekend? Good, good. Is good even that good anymore? At the Selbos, we believe good deserves better. Let's reclaim its true meaning. To us, good has always been about making a difference, and good never picks or chooses who it helps. Isn't it time we all remember what good really means? Weekends are better when you spend it with us. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends with Jason Olborn. I'm here with nurse practitioner Gail McRae as we are inching towards Christmas in 2023 and i bet there are many people that think that this year is going to be a very special one indeed and uh it's well deserved all round but uh we're speaking with gail and before the break we were talking about some of the difficulties and some of the misunderstandings perhaps between gail's perspective on how things played out and others but gail you move on from this point and you meet dr northrop and you get involved with stand firm now what how did that come about and and what was it all about and how did you know that this is where you were going to head that's a great question uh so i had to mention that i had filed legal documents to try to uh bring accountability to my employer before they fired me uh and that process really uh launched me into the whole legal realm of what was happening uh before i was fired i really had no concept of understanding that 
there was any way in any reality where I could be fired for refusing to participate in an experiment. Mm. So we had had uh, state, federal, and international laws and statutes protecting us from mandatory experimentation. I mean, this goes back to uh, you know, Germany with the Nuremberg trials. And so I was blown away that I could have been fired for this. And so I really started deeply delving into the legal uh, platform by which we were being forced to violate human rights. And uh it sent me into a deep education in law. My husband is also studying in law now too, but that uh, that process got me into contact with a lot of people who in the United States have been coming to the same conclusion, which is that we don't really have our constitutional rights. And why is that? Uh, I delve deeply into law in the same way I delve deeply into all of the science around all of the things that I've studied, for both in my nurse practitioner program and uh, surrounding COVID, in that, you know, these things just don't make sense. It doesn't make sense that they can revoke our rights. And uh, so that's how I ended up getting connected with Dr. Christiane Northrup. She's also a very powerful advocate for uh, informed consent and informed care and uh, women's rights. Uh, most of her background is in uh, women's women's rights and women's uh, OB care in this country. Uh, and so we kind of were a natural fit in that way too, because I have the nursing background of it and she has the um, obstetrics and gynecological surgeons uh, background. And uh, so we started Stand Firm Now with uh, one other team member. There's three of us who've started this organization. And uh, the premise of this organization, because uh, I have tried and failed multiple times to litigate against the perpetrators of the COVID crimes that I was exposed to, and I failed. And we keep getting thrown out of these corrupt courts because uh, there is no standing. COVID is new. We don't have standing. That's what all the judges keep saying. So Stand Firm Now is really an organization that was designed to create standing. Mm. So what we need in order to successfully litigate is a massive foundation of expert witnesses. So this means people like myself, doctors, nurses, uh, respiratory therapists, uh, surgeons, um, naturopathic doctors, acupuncturists, practitioners, right? Any practitioner, whether they're actively working or retired with the education to be able to analyze what has happened in COVID uh, and, and to be able to give an educated opinion that these things are not scientific. So what we did is we created this uh, document called the COVID commonalities, and it's it's got about 23 statements on it. This is an affidavit, which is basically which 
it's just a statement of truth. That's what an affidavit is. It has to be legally notarized. Uh, and we do need the actual wet ink signature copy in order to prove in court. So that's what we're up against is all of these courts who are continually trying to disqualify and discredit us. So uh, the original signed document combined with a video of a, of a practitioner uh, putting their face and showing their paper and saying, this is me, and I signed this documentary under oath, uh, or this document under oath, uh, it really does profoundly uh, impact the courts. So if we if we were to walk into a court with thousands of these practitioner signatures, uh, that would do something called set precedence, which would, uh, not only would it allow us to set a fact pattern, but it would also facilitate litigating attorneys all over the world uh, in, um, in bringing uh, consequences and litigation up against all of the perpetrators of these crimes against humanity, because that's really what we're dealing mm -hmm. with here. This is crimes against humanity. So that's what this effort is for, is to uh, really arm the litigating attorneys. And the document, um, the neat thing about this document, we tried to make it as streamlined as possible, but anyone can make it into any type of COVID statement that they want that suits their own expertise. We just tried to make something streamlined that everyone could access and use. So it's basically just a template uh, to try and make the process of creating expert witness testimony as easy as possible. What a fantastic initiative to be able to say that the legal system is failing us because of a novel situation that we're arguing that COVID is new and therefore that uh, you don't have standing, but to reverse that and to create a professional rearguard action against a system unprepared for this level of tyranny at tyranny level 11. There's nothing like it that any of us have seen, certainly not in our lifetimes, but a lot longer. What happens at this point once you gather enough expert witness testimony? Is this then going to be fed into different types of legal cases that come up or are there specific legal cases that you're already working on or other people are already working on on your behalf? All of the above. So the wonderful thing about this uh, evidence, we have a uh, legal team that is able to administratively uh, input evidence into the record. Uh, and so we will get it in. There's a process that we're using called a negative averment, which is basically to prove guilt. Uh, we, we are producing such a profound amount of evidence that we're flipping the verdict to instead of uh, innocent until proven guilty, we have so much robust evidence that uh, the defendants will be guilty unless they can prove themselves innocent, which they won't be able to do. With thousands of expert witnesses, uh, we're, we've been working on this for a while. It has been surprising to me uh, how few practitioners have come forward but I'm hoping that uh, in light of all the new evidence that's been coming forward over the last several months, uh, practitioners are really going to start gaining courage and realizing that 
they need to do something. And this is a very easy, easy something that could have profound impacts. So after the evidence gets submitted uh, into the the United States courts, we will then uh, appeal it into international jurisdiction. So it will be utilizable worldwide. And that's really the takeaway here is that uh, anyone can participate and it will be profoundly impactful and take very little of your time. And we've done all the work for you. The website makes it very easy. There's a step-by-step you know, um, explanation. Everything is very simply uh, set up. And then there's also, uh, in addition to the affidavit, the website also has over 400 exhibits uh, justifying every single statement that's made in the document. So it's not just that we have expert witnesses. We also have a profound amount of physical evidence. Uh, So it's very strong action. I'm very excited to uh, see it go. It's such a wonderful initiative and incredibly important. As we move forward, what kind of legal remedy are you hoping that can be achieved here? Because we are dealing with crimes against humanity, some of the biggest crimes ever attempted or perpetuated on the entire global human population. What would you like to see? Well, once we get people to really understand that we live our lives. This is one of the things that I really come to understand about humanity is that we're currently really living in a um, scarcity mindset. And I really feel that there's going to come a time when humans are able to really recognize that There's nothing scarce here. We have enough. We can can help each other. We can uh, care for each other. We can all uh, live and have all that we need to be healthy and happy together. And so there's really this, this shift that I feel really needs to take place in order for us to really grasp and utilize the power behind this movement. Because we can, you know, I think many of us are doing really wonderful things, but we need the whole globe to really elevate to this understanding that contributing to this type of action is really going to transform what we understand humans to be capable of. I mean, what is really, what is stopping us? And that's really what I think about these globalists is, you know, they have us all thinking that resources are scarce. uh, You know, we need to be afraid of everything. I mean, so this is another concept that I keep coming back to with the with the legal actions I'm taking is like, well, why is it that we are afraid of this virus in the first place? Why are we not as sovereign human beings recognizing that when we come into balance with our ecosystems around us, 
we don't need to be afraid of them. We need to cohabitate with them. So again, it's like these are the types of mental shifts that can really help to transition us out of a place of fear and into a new reality of abundance and uh, cohabitation and uh, different philosophies of how to really thrive. So, I mean, yes, this legal action, uh, I believe is a very good step in that direction, but it's a very, it's a very broad and large overall uh, arching mental state of, you know, bringing consequences uh, and having accountability and changing the mindset of how we exist in this world as humans. No, it's beautifully put. And I just wonder as we look ahead and there's always this constant threat of the next pandemic and sometimes uh, Klaus Schwab gets up and mentions that the next pandemic will be a cyber attack, almost as if he knows what's coming, like as if we don't know that he knows uh, that this is all part of some form of manufactured attempt to usher in a new system. But if COVID was... If we could, in other words, if we rewound the clock three or four years and we were to prepare again and knowing what we all know now, do you think that humanity would approach it differently or do you think they would go down the same path all over again? Wow, what a question. I would definitely have responded a lot more quickly mm. uh, in retrospect. Uh, I would not be fooled again uh, by all of this. I definitely wasted a lot of time trying to understand and convince people uh, that there was nothing to be afraid of. I mean, that's a big part of it. Mm. We knew as early as April of 2020 that uh, the infection fatality rates were less than 1%. Yes. And uh, so, there, you know, there are these things that were just so um, very clear from the get-go. And again, that just goes right back to what I was just working at, is that do we really need to even exist in this place of fear mm, of a virus? Mm, mm. I mean, when you look around you, you know, we're surrounded by all of this illness and chronic disease, but why are you why are we using medicine as a band-aid to a gaping wound rather than getting down to the root cause of an illness or a disease in the first place? You know, there's all these pharmaceutical medications that we give for um, signs and symptoms, but when are we going to start to look deeper and really get down to what it means to be truly well? Uh, you know, I, I, but so in, in engaging with my kids, you know, I give them supplements and we, you know, I'm so acutely aware of, of optimizing their physiological function to prevent them from ever getting sick in the first place. And I really think that that's really where medicine has to head is to wellness care, because right now this system of medication is just, it's really just creating long-term customers for a monetized system of medicine called the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, there's no future in that for humans. Indeed, you, you couldn't have said it any better. And what a tragic situation that it is that you have to get into the system to realise what's wrong with the system in order to get out of the system to fix 
the said system, but it seems to be the only way that experience is what counts in the entire restructuring of the most important profession that there is, the looking after of other human beings. Gail McRae, we've reached the end of our uh, time today, and I just want to thank you um, from the bottom of my heart for the work that you are doing for all of humanity. It is absolutely massive, massive, and of course, for the time this evening, I know how late it is over there for you, so I appreciate that yet again, and I look forward to being able to speak with you again as we catch up. And if you want to check it out, standfirmnow.org. We've reached the end of the hour. We'll take news headlines and be back with more on weekends with Jason Olborn after this on TNT Radio.